Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. It's been a while, but here we are, back with an, another episode of Phrenesis. Happy to have uh, our senior editor, Joey uh, Joseph M. Keegan, uh, join us today. And ordinarily, I, I guess to start, we would kind of ask why you chose um, chose this essay for us to discuss, Joey. But um, having read through it, my, my question is, why, why didn't you bring this to our attention f- sooner? Or why, why, uh, why, did, why didn't I read this elsewhere? This was one of the most breathtaking things I've read in a long while, I think. It, like The prose was just amazing, super clear, really, really beautiful. Um, yeah, so, so, so today we're, we're discussing... Ivan Illich's uh, Silence is a Commons. And uh, Joey, want to give us some, some background? This is the first Illich I've read. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, you know, I, I, I chose this kind of at random. Like, Illich has a, has a you know, he wrote widely and, and very broadly on a whole bunch of different subjects. And um, he has a bunch of these sort of short lectures and essays that are collected at a number of different places. And this was one that I, that I encountered a couple months ago and I read and found, like, like I do with many of these, you know, Illich lectures and essays, I've just found it totally breathtaking. And this was just one that when we were talking about doing this podcast, I was like, oh, you know, we'll read something by Illich. And I kind of, this was the one that came to mind. It turned out to be a completely sort of serendipitous choice because I think that it addresses directly so many of the things that, um, you know, people are thinking and talking about right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, but um, so... I'll give a little bit of background on Illich and his life to kind of contextualize uh, his project in general. Um, he was Viennese, was born in 1926, um, and he became an, a, an ordained uh, Roman Catholic priest in 1951. And, and pretty much from the very beginning of his career as a clergyman, he was a very controversial figure. Um, he, his, he, t- he took his very first job at a, at a very small, uh, very poor parish in um, uh, a Puerto Rican neighborhood in New York City. Um, he knew from the very outset that he really he wanted to work with poor people. Um, and he had a kind of hostility toward um, sort of, you know, middle class uh, politesse and uh, manners. Um, he became a uh, the, the vice rector of the... Um, Catholic University of Puerto Rico for a period of time. He was eventually ejected from his rectorship for having uh, sort of um, political and to some extent religious disagreements with the heads of the school. Um, and he was he was very much a man of the left, which I think is something that is hard to th- is hard to understand now because I think given the the political possibilities that that, that are um, present in our current day, the kind of critiques that he is leveling and the kind of thinking that he's doing doesn't really have, as far as I can tell, much of a place on the left. I think that he's he sort of registers more as a sort of reactionary figure, um, a kind of reactionary anarchistic figure, even though his, uh, his sentiments are very much for, you know, for freedom and equality and the kinds of things that used to be 
potentially um, cherished principles of you know what what was heretofore sort of known as leftism. I think that the ground has shifted out from beneath him. Um, in 1961, he founded this this uh, center in Cuernavaca, Mexico, called the Center of Intercultural Formation. Um, later, changed its name to the Center for Intercultural Documentation, and that was ostensibly a training, a, a sort of language school for missionaries who were coming from um, from the Catholic Church. Uh, but it became a kind of laboratory for his own thinking and for developing. Um, his criticism of government programs and also of the Catholic Church's involvement in these kinds of um, international development schemes. So this was around the time that um, President Kennedy's Alliance for Progress um, was launched. Uh, the Peace Corps um, was was started to get going around that time, and he was very skeptical of these um, supposed humanitarian interventions into the Third World. Um, as a kind of cultural and technological um, imperialism. Um, he thought that more often than not, uh, these kinds of interventions into, into places that are ostensibly poor um, with the goal of raising their standard of living did more to like destroy the fabric of the life world that, um, that existed in these places um, than it did to do anybody any good. So he was always very skeptical of of this kind of um, notion of progress. Um, he eventually retired from active priesthood after having a, a number of conflicts with the, with the Vatican, but he, he still thought of himself very much as a, as a priest. And, um, you know, he, he lived a life of celibacy until the day that he died. Um, he became, I think, perhaps even more of a religious writer and thinker the older that he got. Um, and, uh, he died in 2002, so within the lifetimes of many of us, but I'm not sure that uh, he really found, he, he, he found a, a large readership in France while he was alive, and he had a number of um, friends and, and, and defenders in America for a period of time. Famously, Governor Jerry Brown of California was a friend of, of Illich, um, but he... I think that for for a long while, his the kinds of critiques that he was making um, didn't really have any fertile ground, but um, but yeah, as as you as as you'll see when we start to discuss this essay, I think that a lot of the things that he was talking about and writing about in the nineteen seventies and eighties um, were extraordinarily prescient for our current day. And what other works of his have you have you read? Has it mostly just been lectures and essays, or, or have you read one of his books? I've read a couple of his books. The my first encounter with him was reading his book *Deschooling Society*, which is this it's a critique of the education, so the sort of modern educational project. Um, this notion of sort of universal education, of education as being the way to um, make a good and livable political community. He, he rejects that notion outright. Um, and I've also read his book, Tools for Conviviality, which is simultaneously a, a, a critique of modern technology and also um, like a first step towards thinking about how to better think about technology in a way that contributes to flourishing human communities rather than being destructive of them. So um, he didn't write a lot of books. Uh, he only has a couple of books, um, 
and he he you know he wrote he wrote widely, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure that this lecture was supposed to have been included in a later work that never ended up getting finished. Um, he has a number of discussions that uh, are recorded with a good friend of his, the uh, Canadian Broadcasting Company's David Cayley, who has a lot of this stuff on his website. Um, and some of these later discussions that they have in his life were clearly geared towards a project uh, that he was hoping to write down, but he ended up not being able to write a lot of the stuff that he wanted to write out. So um, he's sort of a strange figure for that reason that a lot of the lectures and essays that he gave sort of suggest a direction that uh, he, you know, he very clearly like a more systematic book could have been written about it, but uh, it just never happened either because he was too busy or um, he ended up just getting too old and dying or for, for whatever reason. But yeah, I, I guess we, we should just jump in into the, the essay now. Um, and it starts off with three lines um, that are, fairly poetic despite um through the beginning of the talk he he describes himself as not a poet not not capable of putting things uh with as much clarity as he he'd like he he writes computers are doing to communication what fences did to pastures and cars did to streets yeah he you you, you mentioned in the beginning uh, how, how how um struck you were by by the level of his prose i mean he has this really kind of signature way of writing which is you know not particularly argumentative more assertive right he sort of makes these pr pronouncements about the world and um and they're very evocative but um yeah and and, and in, in this case right this this uh text come from comes from a lecture that he gave in japan and so um you'll you know there are all of these all these places where he's directly addressing um, both the person who has brought him there, um, somebody that he refers to as Minasan, and then also he makes these references towards Japanese culture um, or Japanese history. Um, I think both rhetorically, right, that he's trying to sort of make a connection to you know between the 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 substance of what he's trying to talk about, which is in the first move, it's sort of the enclosure of the commons in England, and second move, it's um, about roads and how, and, and the, the changes in, in how we think and how we think about and use roads um, and his examples in Mexico, and he wants to sort of be able to make this legible to a Japanese audience. But um, I think that uh, it's that that's kind of the kind of um, performative humility that he uses to say, oh, you know, if if only I were a poet, I would be able to uh, say this in very few words. is is very funny because he actually doesn't use many words to explain i think a whole lot <laughs> in, in this in this lecture it's rather short right i mean my printed version is seven pages long but for the sh for the very short length of this it, it is it contains worlds uh, absolutely i i flew through it uh the first time reading and and it packed a punch not nonetheless um that so the the reason that he's brought to, to speak or, or the occasion on which he's speaking is I, I suppose a, a symposium a forum uh, on the computer managed society and um, so so I take it at this event many people were speaking about uh, the nature of computers what technology does to transform society and he he takes a very different tack to that and um, 
and, and you like like you said, making uh, consistent reference to to Japan throughout, he he notes that it's particularly interesting, and, and perhaps hopeful that Japan, a country widely associated with technological advancement, with all of this. Um, was computers so well integrated into society, so much digital life, that they're taking steps to, well, as he frames it, approach the issue of technology in society as an issue of political ecology, which I thought was a really interesting framing. And doing so both political ecology in the sense of how we relate to our natural environments and very much environmental ecology and political ecology in the sense of sort of the inner workings of society in the spaces we have created in the, the various environments we have made for ourselves to interact. Yeah. I like to imagine that, um, you know, this was, so this was published in, or given, or republished in 1983. It was given in 1982. Um, and that, you know, it kind of took the form of one of these um, day-long um, Silicon Valley um, uh, self-congratulatory TED Talk fests, um, where, you know, everyone's there, uh, you know, gushing about the uh, endless promise of computerization. Because, um, you know, keep in mind, this is very, you know, early uh, in the development. Most people don't have personal computers at this point and won't for another decade or so. Um, and, you know, so after a series of speeches of how computers are going to transform and improve the human condition, uh, Illich comes and kind of deflates everyone's pretensions. Um, and, and I, I think situating this within, um, you know, it's, it seems almost trite to say that computers have done this at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, that he was standing, um, you know, kind of at this period of when they seem to hold tremendous promise and, you know, sort of crying out alone in the wilderness about it um, you know, gives it a lot more power than if it were published in 2020. Um, and, you know, that he, that he seems to be keying into things that, uh, you know, our experience with technology is that they may be the case. Well, I, I often find... Um, I suppose I'll make references a little, try, uh, to, to the David Foster Wallace speech, This is Water, uh, that oftentimes it seems like thinkers on the precipice of great change or before things have totally worked their course have much greater insight into the way things are going to progress or the way this example technology is going to transform and, uh, infiltrate into our lives that then us once we're already in that point. Uh, I mean, today, I it's hard to see outside of technology or think out, uh, outside of all the ways it, it influences us. It's, it's the water in which we're surrounded. And um, 
and I, I think Illich is able able to see that this isn't the natural human condition in a way that that might be a little tougher uh, for us now. There, there's another line I want to pull out from. I mean, just like the very beginning of the speech, uh, he says. I want to focus on the new electronic management devices as a technical change of the human environment, which, to be benign, must remain under political and not exclusively expert control, which is has a lot buried into it. And I think is a debate we're trying to figure out in our society right now, how, how to keep technological change benign and who or what's should be controlling uh, the ways in which it influences our, our society. And I, I think it's very interesting that he pulls out uh, not exclusively expert uh, control. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of, um, you know, he's not making exactly the same uh, criticism, but um, Heidegger and his question concerning technology um, says that most people assume that you can take a standpoint where you can just control technology um, and that if we always keep in mind that uh, technology is something that's supposed to be serving human ends then we're fine but that that itself is taking a technological standpoint standpoint toward technology itself um, and so when we talk about uh, subjecting it to political rather than expert control or something that to me means you have to take a non-technological uh, vantage point of technology uh, to determine, you know, how it's supposed to f fit within collective life. Yeah, something like technology does not contain within itself the means of comprehending technology, or something, right? Like the the if we're going to under if we're going to understand it in such a way that it um, to, as so as to prevent its destructive capabilities, we have to have some other means. Um, some other sort of set of principles we're working from to comprehend it. I mean, I think the the one thing that's sort of buried, I think, in that in that short quote, which I also found really evocative, and I sort of underlined in my thing, was that, you know, political but not expert. I think that that turn of phrase raises the question of what does Illich mean by political, um, and in, in my the best that I can make out from this essay. Uh, and you know, I, I have a sense of sort of what he's doing in, in, in his broader project, but you know, I think he also contains with you know contained within that little turn of phrase is a hostility towards tech technocracy as such that when he's when he says where it must remain under political control i think he means exactly what the kind of exactly what will's talking about something like a community getting together and reasoning about how they should live their life together um a kind of collective negotiation of uh what the shape of 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 collective life is going to look like not just having supposed experts sitting in Congress, bringing in other experts, quote unquote, from you know Silicon Valley and from business or whatever, and then making determinations for the whole of America. Um, it's something far more fundamental and basic and far more kind of radically democratic. Um, I think in the end, uh, he, has a, he has this very sort of, um, maybe even, uh, kind of like rosy colored vision of a sort of democratic life with one another where, you know, the individuals who constitute a community um, 
should be understood to be capable of negotiating the terms of that community and they shouldn't be beholden to the you know decision making that happens thousands of miles away from people who supposedly know better than they do about how their world should look um and there, there's this great example, you know, it, basically every single sentence in this is, is, is infinitely quotable, but there's this great example where he talks about his grandfather. Um, can, can we hold off on that, Joey? I, I, um, cause that, that is such a great uh, moment, but I want to kind of build up, up to that and, and actually backtrack a little bit. Another great line I missed even earlier, um, Illich is talking about the importance of, of Japan uh, to initiate some sort of action on, on uh, how people can limit the encroachments of machines on uh, their own behavior. He says, Japan is looked upon as the capital of electronics. It would be marvelous if it became for the entire world the model of a new politics of self-limitation in the field of communication, which, in my opinion, is henceforth necessary if a people wants to remain self-governing. governing, and, and I think that it, that points to, to what you're just saying about the type of politics he, he's imagining. And, and it's a weird, another weird formulation, a model of a new politics of self-limitation. Um, which is different than how I think most people would ever ever conceive of um, politics, which he thinks is necessary for people to remain self-governing. And normally, I mean, particularly in the American context, and particularly um, within uh, Silicon Valley or, or technological spheres here in the U.S., I think there's much more concern for um, for a different sense of liberty in, in what we're doing a not a sense of self-limitation uh, of placing restrictions upon yourself and, and that that just seemed a little little jarring and really fascinating to me yeah I, th I think we should spend a second to talk about what he means by commons um, because I think that uh, Right. What's new about a politics of self-limitation is that in the past, the need for such a limitation was kind of unthinkable because um, because there wasn't a sense of this. Um, things weren't all resources to be mined and to be and, 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 and production was not something to be constantly ramped up. Right. So now that we live in, in this kind of new modern set of circumstances, this new modern productive scheme. Um, where everything is a resource and all production um, is a kind of resource extraction that is, it, that has no limitations on its growth. Um, that makes a new set of situations where if there is a limitation, it's going to have to be self-imposed. But before that, ex there were the commons, right? And you had mentioned it, it briefly his sort of discussion of, of the road, um, which is one of his two great examples, right? He talks about the 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 English countryside, the grasslands that were all held in common. Um, they were, it was you know, a, a shared territory where, where the, you know, the peasantry would graze animals and um, you know, grow subsistence, um, do subsistence farming. Um, and it was, this, it was this big shared territory where everybody had some amount of ownership for it for the sake of subsistence. 
and then and then the enclosure laws were passed and that was divided up between separate landholders um, and the commons were utterly destroyed likewise with in, in terms of roads and i thought that this was a, an extraordinary example of what of, of a far more a far broader i think sense of what a commons is than the specific example of the commons um uh, regularly referred to in the english countryside he says here he's talking about um in uh the roads in mexico city he says in the old parts of the city the streets were true commons some people sat on the road to sell vegetables and charcoal others put their chairs on the road to drink coffee and tequila Others held their meetings on the road to decide on the new headman for the neighborhood or to determine the price of a donkey. Others drove their donkeys through the crowd, walking next to the heavily loaded beasts of burden. Others sat in the saddle. Children played in the gutter, and still people walking could use the road to get from one place to another. Um, and then he says, such roads were not built for people, right? It's not, like, it's not like roads were made to be this type of commons but he says like any true commons the street itself was the result of people living there and making that space livable the dwellings that lined the roads were not private homes in the modern sense that is garages for the overnight deposit of workers the threshold still separated two living spaces one intimate and one common but neither homes in this intimate sense nor streets as commons survived economic development so the commons was like it was like a it was a different sense of the public right it was a it was a place that you as a person who who lived in that region you had some kind of ownership over it but it was like a it was a place that you shared with everybody it 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 wasn't it was owned kind of by you you had a you had a stake in it but it wasn't yours in quite the same way it was it was, this, it, was it had this kind of sense of shared ownership but it was like a shared living space um, so the, the sense that we have of like, you know, your, your home is a kind of fortress that belongs solely to you and then you exit out of your doors into something that's owned by, I don't know, private corporations and the government, that kind of sense just didn't exist. And, and then he says what happened was that these roads became used primarily for automobile traffic. So the next paragraph, he says, in the new sections of Mexico City, streets are no more for people. They are now roadways for automobiles, for buses, for taxis, cars, and trucks. People are barely tolerated on the streets unless they're on their way to a bus stop. If people now sat down or, st or stopped on the street, they would become obstacles for traffic, and traffic would be dangerous to them. The road has been degraded from a commons to a simple resource for the circulation of vehicles. People can circulate no more on their own. Traffic has displaced their mobility. They can circulate only when they are strapped down and are moved. So this is what it looks like when something that is something that is a commons gets goes through a process of enclosure and is transformed from a living space into a kind of resource. Um, and so it's it's unlikely it seems that these kinds of things can be restored. He seems to, I mean, he doesn't express this outright, but he doesn't give any sense that that the, the roads can be made commons again or something if we just do the right thing. He does say that the, the existing commons need to be defended, um, but it seems like those things that have been warped and degraded are, are kind of warped and degraded um, interminably now. And, and um, so this politics of self-limitation, it would seem, would be something that, you do in order to keep the sort of last existing commons in this case for the sake of this essay what he, what he refers to as silence to keep that thing from being strip mined as a resource like these other ones have been and as i was going through this um 
and maybe uh, both or, or one of you uh, were thinking the same thing, screaming out to me in the back of my mind was, this is so much better than Rousseau. Um, and uh, the, the, his discussion of enclosure is, is just beautiful throughout. And, and in case readers aren't, aren't familiar uh, with Rousseau's discourse on inequality or, or haven't yet read this Illich essay, I, I'd like to, to quote a little bit um, from part two of the discourse on inequality. Uh, Rousseau writes... The first person who, having enclosed a plot of land, took it into his head to say, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the true founder of civil society. What crimes, wars, murders, what miseries and horrors would the human race have been spared, had someone pulled up the stakes or filled in the ditch and cried out to his fellow man, do not listen to this imposter, you are lost if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong to all and the earth to no one. Which... The, the parallels, I, I think, are apparent, but there's also, I think, a fundamental difference. Throughout Rousseau's treatment uh, uh, of how uh, inequality and property came to be uh, in that discourse, he, he talks uh, as if uh, people didn't really recognize uh, this happened. Suddenly, this enclosure was set up, and you just had to play by the rules. You didn't have much choice to it. But also, he, he asserts that, that people just weren't aware of what was going on. And Illich is a little more nuanced than that. Um, he, he writes... The appropriation of the grassland by the lords was challenged, but the more fundamental transformation of grassland or of roads from commons to resource has happened until recently without being subjected to criticism. And whereas the actual enclosing, he he thinks people were aware of and frustrated by you can no longer um graze your your animals uh makes me think of the <laughs> oregonians who had been trying to graze uh their animals on federal land that caused all the hubbub uh Illich notes something a little bit more pernicious that went by unrecognized and unchallenged and that this is The even more degrading transformation of people into members of an industrial labor force and into consumers was taken for granted. For almost a hundred years, the majority of political parties have challenged the accumulation of environmental resources in private hands. However, the issue was argued in terms of the private utilization of these resources, not the distinction of the commons. Uh, man, that line didn't quite get to what I was hoping to. But uh, he, he discusses that with this enclosure, necessarily a whole set of enterprises come in to being of how to dole out the various resources that have been enclosed, how to interact with them, how to access them, how to profit off them, which necessarily transforms the economy from a shared commons to one organized by wage labor that 
he writes, transforming the nature into the goods and services on which the satisfaction of basic needs by consumers depends. That this transformation is in the blind spot of political economy. We've recognized the enclosing, but we haven't been able to come to terms with all the things that that entails. One way to put this um, is in the background, um, so I guess it's kind of genealogy of economics, but that scarcity, which, um, you know, bounds all economic discussion, was an invented problem. Um, that that uh, economists will project throughout all of human history that people lived, uh, you know, in a state of scarcity and therefore more or less practiced the same kind of economic practice um, to maximize whatever the outcome as a result of that scarcity um, but, but you know but that this this was an invented problem and he's worried uh, to put it mildly about uh, the practices that this invented problem will justify um, you know which is you know anything from a kind of monopolistic accumulation of, but also efficiency measures um, where everything gets turned into a resource, into a form of economic capital. Um, you know, and, and by a process that didn't have to happen, um, that, that it's unnatural would be a way to put it, but it's all highly contingent, but it's, it's uh, so pervaded um, you know, the world we live in that we don't really notice it. Yeah, in one sense, he agrees with both Rousseau and Marx, right, that it is the case that enclosure is sort of the invention of, of modern poverty, um, that, that poverty, as we understand it, comes out of the destruction of these shared common spaces and the, the kind of new invention of this form of private landholding. But on the other sense, he's like very much a kind of arch anti-Marxist, right? Whereas, whereas Marx would say something like, well, the problem with enclosure is has to do with the, the monopolization of these resources or this capital in the, in the hands of a specific group of people. Illich would say that the problem is the transformation of a rich, um, you know, complex life world into something like resources or capital, which, I mean, Marx shares that critique, but then, you know, but then says that the only way through is out, or the, or the only way out is through, right? So you have to run, run, continue to run forward in the direction of transforming everything in, in, into resources and capital, and then you, you know, sort of achieve at the end of this long process of degradation, um, a revolution. Illich, I think, very much doesn't, uh, share that sense of revolution and he just sees at the end of this long process nothing but nothing but um degradation and and suffering um and 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 he's he's trying to turn our attention to the more yeah as as, as brad both brad and will have noted he's trying to turn our, our attention to the more subtle consequences of these of these processes right that the process of enclosure doesn't only have economic uh ramifications but it has like anthropological ramifications it changes the way that we understand 
what kind of being we are and it changes our relationship to, our relations to each other and it changes our relations our relationship to our, our world to the natural environment it is um it is a transformation of basically everything and he calls it a degradation and and and, and in the very beginning of this he, he talks about how you know one of the things that um that the new computer science is doing he says um the machine-like behavior of people chained to electronics constitutes a degradation of their well-being and of their dignity, which, for most people in the long run, becomes intolerable. Observations of the sickening effect of programmed environments show that people in them become indolent, impotent, narcissistic, and apolitical. The political process breaks down because people cease to be able to govern themselves. They demand to be managed, right? And this kind of thing comes out of out of this process of enclosure, um, he says a little bit later that enclosure allows the bureaucrats to define local community as impotent to provide, unable to provide for its own survival. Right, that it is the loss of, of of this, like the commons allows for a kind of collective freedom, and enclosure creates the conditions for a kind of, you know, rule of the few, a sort of oligarchic control. By by a few who are who are in possession of things over a very degraded um, right. That's many. It's, it, it's not just that it creates the material conditions for a kind of um, you know oligarchic or managerial rule, um, but that it makes true the claim that people are unfit for democratic governance, so that it. it so changes the kind of people they are uh, and how they relate to one another, um, you know, so as to kind of undermine the conditions necessary for democracy, not just materially, but in the kind of people uh, that can govern themselves democratically. So it's, it's yes, the, uh, you know, bureaucrats can claim that these people are unfit, um, but one of the other side effects that he sees is that they're actually right um, or that they could be right if this is drawn out further. Joey, you, you got right to the next paragraph I, I had highlighted and wanted to address. And I think, I think you guys are both right in, in what you're pulling out of it. The one thing I'd like to emphasize, um, and it seems to me maybe the distinction uh one of the distinctions between him and Rousseau and Marx, he writes, enclosure has denied the people to write to that kind of environment on which throughout all of history, the moral economy of survival had been based. And that's yet another just fascinating phrase he has in here. The moral economy of survival being, being erased by enclosure. What, what do you guys take that to mean? Yeah, I mean, my understanding of it is something like, for, like, for a span of time that we can only accurately say something like ever, right? For, you know, as as far back as we can imagine, there have been places in the world that were understood to have been commons, right? And the the the, the nature and specifics of these kind of shift around, but like, nonetheless, um, the commons is has been up until the modern age, a sort of permanent feature of human, of human collective life. 
and then these this kind of you know cascading this cascading process of enclosure has taken this thing that used that, that was sort of taken as the the the, the basic one of the basic foundations of, of collective human life and obliterated it. And so now all of a sudden, whereas people, you know, like um, medieval peasantries were were poor, right? I mean, they didn't have an enormous amount of things materially, but nonetheless, they're, you know, they understood that, that they were capable of surviving in as much as they were capable of growing things on a, there was land out there that they could grow stuff on, right? They didn't have to worry about being blocked by a fence. They didn't have to worry about potentially trespassing upon um, uh, the, like the land of a of a large landholder that that wouldn't um, that would you know if they found a small crop in the corner of their property, um, they would retaliate something like that, right? That you could basically find a piece of land to grow food on, and then you could produce something and then live off of it. Um, you know, this is likely a very simplistic sort of understanding of things, but 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 nonetheless, right? That had, that had been taken for granted as um, what he calls the you know the the basis of the moral economy of survival. And so, what do you do in a world where where all of these commons have been destroyed and everything is now owned by somebody, and there's and there isn't this kind of shared space for. Um, for collective, uh, you know, producing the collective means, the, the, the means of collective survival. Right, and 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 not just materially, but in in terms of uh, fostering individual identification with the community, um, a, a, a common space where people live their lives in common um, is a way of fostering that um, sort of a actual physical manifestation of that. Um, you know, in addition to a place where other, we might say, higher forms of community building activity like ritual are taken place that, uh, you know, set the community's place, uh, you know, within the wider political order, within the natural world, within the cosmos, something like that. Um, and, and when you tear this apart, when you subdivide it uh, and there's no commons left, you... But, you know, eliminate one of the most effective ways of getting people to identify with each other, um, to think of themselves as a collective, uh, and and that it's very hard to do democracy uh, or to self-govern, so to speak, uh, without uh, some sense in which your citizens, you know, really identify with one another. I'm going to be a, a little bit cringe and self-promote uh, here on our podcast. I think this concept of moral economy of survival is something we were trying to hit on, though not with that phrase, and I wish we had read this, I had read this prior, with the symposium we had recently published on political economy. I I think Illich is right that, that th- this moral economy is totally absent from, from our... our contemporary discussions of, of political economy and I, I think it's very much very much a problem for us and I think it's interesting obviously our contemporary society doesn't have a, a commons in mass or a great deal of small commons but it seems like the further enclosure we have 
found with with quarantine has sort of exacerbated every element of this that Illich is, is discussing. I, I think our, our communities have been even more decimated because of it. I, I, I mean, everything throughout this paragraph we've been discussing that, that he says comes as a result of uh, enclosure, I, I think has been exacerbated by our pandemic-driven social enclosure. Yeah, I, to, to note the thing about the about the symposium, I think you're totally right that this is the kind of thing that we sort of had our eyes set on. One of the things I think that is really interesting about Illich's take is that he's very clearly concerned with, though he doesn't seem to use the term, the common good. But it seems like what he, what his critique implies, although it doesn't state outright, is that the the common good has a sort of material foundation, or a, or a maybe even a, it, there, there's a sort of conceptual order that exists before it, right? And and that we've sort of lost that, and that thing was the commons, right? That the commons allowed for a sense of the common good, and a world in which everything is trapped in with trapped in enclosure and, and what he sort of later calls institutionalization is one where trying to discover or sort of re- reassert um, the common good is just not possible, right? You, you can make arguments for it all day long, but if your world doesn't admit of something like that, then you're just sort of blowing hot air. Um, and I, I, I totally agree that, um, that the, the quarantine stuff has has revealed to us. I I, I, th- I actually think that it's less a matter of it being destructive of the last remaining commons, and more a matter of it revealing to us that those commons have already been destroyed. And I think of this a lot, like you know, here in Chicago, for instance. Um, I live on the south side of Chicago, and we have a fair amount of like really big, beautiful parks around here. And um, around the time of the sort of early lockdowns, I guess this was last March. The parks were still kind of open. Um, the city didn't really seem to know what to do with them. And then somewhere, I think it was the last week of March, the city decided to shut them all down. All of the parks were shut down. You couldn't, you could, you technically couldn't go into any of this, any of the parks, and do anything really. the The, the lakefront trail was closed down. They they had put up barricades and they were heavily policed. Um, I watched a number of of uh, tennis games and sort of frisbee days in the park over the summer get interrupted by the police. Um, and this wasn't a destruction of the commons. This was, this for me was a kind of a, a revelation that, um, that, that these parks are not the commons, right? That these, these parks are owned by the government and being owned by the government is a very different kind of situation than having something held in common, right? Um, he says at the very end of this that uh, what enclosure means is to be policed, right? He says, um, uh, the defense of the commons constitutes a crucial public task for political action during the 80s. This is the time when this lecture is given. The task must be to undertaken urgently because the commons can exist without police, but resources cannot. Just as traffic does, computers call for police and for ever more of them in an ever more subtle, subtle form. So we haven't gotten quite to the main thrust of the essay, which is talking about the extent to which silence is a commons. But, um, but I think the question of police is a really important one that like, if something is truly held in common, then it would be impossible for 
you know, some random Chicago police officers or whatever to, to, to show up and tell me that I couldn't use that thing. But in as much as all that we understand in our world is just different forms of ownership, right? Um, my apartment is, it was, is owned by a rental company, which is owned by a private equity firm. The road outside of my apartment is owned by the city. Um, the parks are owned by the city. Various other buildings are owned by different people. I can't look anywhere and find an actual commons except for potentially, and I think this is a really embattled one, what he calls silence. So what, 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 does he, what does he mean when he talks about silence as a commons? Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. It, Joey, do you want to read uh, about the boat? Yeah, about traveling to the island. Yeah, this is this is I think one of the more one of the more amazing passages I've come across in in Illich and um, and that says a lot because there's a lot of amazing stuff. So um, this is his this is way of sort of explaining what uh, what he means about silence as a commons and um, what the destruction of that silence looks like. So he says, this man, namely, or he says this man who speaks to you, namely Ivan Illich was born 55 years ago in Vienna. One month after his birth, he was put on a train and then on a ship and brought to the island of Brock. Here, in a village on the Dalmatian coast, his grandfather wanted to bless him. My grandfather lived in the house in which his family had lived since the time when Muromachi ruled in Kyoto. Since then, on the Dalmatian coast, many rulers had come and gone. The Dogues of Venice, the Sultans of Istanbul, the Corsairs of Almissa, the Emperors of Austria, and the Kings of Yugoslavia. But these many changes in the uniform and language of the governors had changed little in daily life during these 500 years. The very same olive wood rafters still supported the roof on my, grandma, my grandfather's house. Water was still gathered from the stone slabs on the roof. The wine was still pressed in the same vats, the fish caught from the same kind of boat, and the oil came from trees planted when Edo was in, was in its youth. My grandfather received news twice a month. The news now arrived by steamer in three days, and formerly by sloop, it had taken five days to arrive. When I was born, for the people who lived off the main routes, history still flowed slowly, imperceptibly. Most of the environment was still in the commons. People lived in houses that they had built, moved on streets that had been trampled by the feet of their animals, were autonomous in the procurement and disposal of their water, could depend upon their own voices when they wanted to speak up. All of this changed with my arrival in Brock. On the same boat on which I arrived in 1926, the first loudspeaker was landed on the island. Few people there had ever heard of such a thing. Up to that day, all men and women had spoken with more or less equally powerful voices. Henceforth, this would change. Henceforth, the access to the microphone would determine whose voice shall be magnified. Silence now ceased to be in the commons. It became a resource for which loudspeakers compete. Language itself was transformed thereby from a local commons into a national resource for communication. As enclosure by the Lords increased national productivity by denying the individual peasant to keep a few sheep, so the encroachment of the loudspeaker has destroyed that silence which for so far had given each man and woman his or her proper and equal voice. Unless you have access to a loudspeaker, you are now silenced." Man, that's just so good. Yeah, and I, I think again, right? There's a there's a reason why I think all of us, when we read this, thought that this was an extraordinarily prescient piece of writing. That you know, in the wake of the riot that happened at the Capitol and the subsequent lockdown of you know 
the the banning of Donald Trump from Twitter and all of this, you know, sort of tech platform speech, you know, free speech censorship and the arguments around it and so on and so forth, right? Notice one thing you don't find an argument in favor of, silence. That all of the arguments that are happening are arguments about whose speech should be, you know, protected or not or whatever, right? It all comes down to like, how should the resources of silence be distributed? We, it, it, it reveals to us in these arguments that we already take for granted um, the dividing up of this commons into different plots. We, we, already, we already think about um, the space of language as being something that is, that is strip mineable. And what Illich, wants, what Illich wants to remind us of and restore, if, if at all possible, is the ability to just exist within silence and to not be bothered by the media or to be bothered by, you know, the government projecting its messages on loudspeakers, to be bothered by, you know, your, your neighbor screaming their opinions at you, right? It might be the case that all this stuff is protected under the First Amendment, whatever, right? Illich isn't really interested in that. He's interested in the ability to exist within contemplative silence and what the loss of that means for us, for our language, for our sense of personhood, for the communities that we inhabit, for everything. Yeah, the sense of personhood is big. Two paragraphs later, he says, silence according to Western and Eastern tradition alike is necessary for the emergence of persons, um, you know, which, which t- to me is in the sense of uh, identity construction, um, you know, the building up of a self, um, you know, is done in silence, um, uh, you know, contemplative thought about, um, you know, our, ourselves, who we are, our place among, you know, our neighbors and in our wider community. And it seems to me he's saying if we aren't allowed is maybe giving too much away already, but if, if we don't have that silence uh, to do that, then that process is uh, effectively outsourced to the loudest people who can do that identity building, selfhood constructing for us. Right after where you read, Will, um, he continues... We could easily be made increasingly dependent on machines for speaking and for thinking, as we are already dependent on machines for moving. And I think, I, I, I mean, we are ever more dependent on machines for speaking and for thinking. I mean, right here, <laughs> well, we're speaking via machines. Um, I'm reading this via machine, getting my thoughts out via the machine. The what I thought I would come in to this podcast discussing at this point was how um, was how now we're in sort of a battle for the commons of the internet and, and how that's starting to be changed and divvied up um, various companies, various government regulations asserting more control and taking away was once sort of a, a sense of, of commons on the internet. But I, after what you said about um, Chicago Parks, Joey, I, I'm thinking that that's, that's the more apt comparison. The, the internet, the, the ways in which we're communicating right now 
aren't actual comments, despite despite us thinking so or treating them like it. it that I think that this is more of a a revelation of how enclosed internet spaces are, rather than a transformation of them into becoming enclosed. Yeah, it's not a commons because we know that at any time we could just be shut down by the cops, right? What you know, the, and, and he says at the very end, you know, what he means by cop isn't like the actual police, but you know, he said I've already read this, but he says just as just as traffic does, computers call for police and for ever more of them and in ever more subtle forms. You know, I, I can't help but think about that uh, that wonderful Freddie DeBoer essay, Planet of Cops, where he writes about the um, propensity of social media to inspire people to rat on people, right? That it's, it's a sort of seemingly kind of um, organic process that's generated from the medium itself that um, it inspires people to want to be tattletales and hall monitors and to, and to go to the, the people in power and to say, this person has said a bad thing, right? We're always, when you're using the internet, and, th- and this is... I, you know, I think that like, I, I often romantically think about the Internet of my youth, right, which always seemed like this kind of Wild West, like, uh, you know, place for freaks and weirdos. And, and, and you know, it was like a was interesting kind of patchwork, um, sort of medieval landscape of different message boards that, you know, largely operated um, autonomously from one another. But I think that this was already the case back then that, the sense of the internet as a commons, uh, you know, the techno utopians always thought that, but it was all it was already written into the technology for it to become a kind of resource-based thing, to for it to for it to be the thing that is that is policed, that is, um, you know, the ever more subtle type of of cop, right? That all of these different ways of banning and ejecting people and so on and so forth from every single feasible sort of internet thing, um, I think reveals to us that like our, our sense of the internet as a commons is uh, a kind of utopian dream and that something else is happening on this medium that is, that is subtler um, and that I think should, uh, should give us pause, right? And, and, and should make us reflect upon what what good does this thing actually do for human flourishing? What could it do for human flourishing that it isn't doing? And how does it degrade us? The the policing has grown ever more subtle and mechanized to the point where it, it is no longer people uh, policing on the internet. It, it's computers and algorithms that are, are moderating and deciding. And I think sort of a microcosm of the point you just made, Joey, is kind of the example of Bitcoin or the various cryptocurrencies where when started they they pretended to be a sort of commons and that anyone with with a computer could go and dedicate time and, and resources and would be able to extract uh, from this thing freely accessible and that's very much not not the case now now with bitcoins that it has turned into a, a total resource but that that's written into as you said the code that that's by its design the it seems like a lot of these internet ecosystems 
I, I guess the technological ecology to, to complement our political ecology set themselves up under the guise of a commons that invites us in and then slowly start enclosing themselves. And I, I, I'm uncertain what the implications of that are. I think what, what you're getting at by saying that it's, you know, written into the nature of it um, is that, it, it, you know, any kind of inclination or idea that we have that this was in common was also, was always untrue. Um, that it's not just, you know, it's kind of uh, st- structurally, it would have a, you know, a propensity to end up like this. But that if you think about, even at the beginning, you know, what the barriers to access were, the fact that it was, you know, always owned and hosted or moderated by someone else, um, that that's not a true commons, really, and that it could have been ripped out, uh, you know, the the quote-unquote equal access could always be ripped out from under your feet. because you're always dependent on someone else again to host, moderate it, or or whatever, um, you know, or that you couldn't access it without, you know, access to a certain number of things. Um, I also think the policing point is kind of ironic because of when this is given, which is 1982, uh, the beginning um, of the... Reagan Thatcher privatization revolutions uh, and what were those couched as that you know they were always couched as um, you, you know maximizing to the greatest extent possible individual freedom where individual freedom is uh, you know your ability to own as much as possible of the constantly proliferating products um, or things that are ripped out of commons. Um, and what Illich is saying is, you know, while they may give speeches talking about, you know, how much this will expand your personal liberty, that for every time you, you privatize something, you know, create a new product with, you know, intellectual or other property rights, you're creating a concomitant need to police that, which you know, it is something that will eventually end up encroaching on your freedom. And so the, uh, you know, the language that that was couched in was always illusory or was always a lie. And I, I think, um, thank you for highlighting that, that, that sense of freedom, uh, or liberty is complete, is the complete opposite of the politics of self-limitation that Illich starts this off uh, saying saying that we need. Um, I, and so, going a little bit back to Rousseau, Will, you made me think, one of you, please correct me, or, or one of our listeners who is more uh, better versed in Rousseau, I, I think Rousseau seems to find enclosure being, if not natural, sort of a, a necessary consequence uh, of human political life. That, that that is, if you'd like, written into our code. It, it is 
something that necessarily is going to come to be. Do you think that Illich serves a, provides enough of a, a, a challenge to that? Is is enclosure is enclosure necessary? Is there any possibility of preserving or actually having a commons, uh, and particularly one that doesn't devolve to private property at some point? I think that Illich is a pessimist, but he's not a determinist. Um, and so where uh, I don't know enough about Rousseau to, to know that, uh, to, to know whether that take is accurate or not, but, but if, that, if that is sort of what he's arguing, that there's something kind of within the nature of human community or something that tends in the direction of enclosure, I think Illich's sense is more something like the things that have happened have happened and they can't be uninvented. We can't, we can't undo enclosure. Um, or if enclosure is undone, it will not be a matter of our will and our decision-making. It will be something like a divine intervention in the course of human history or something like that. Um, and what we're, and what we're faced with is the need to make decisions about what the future will be, given what we know about the past and what possibilities exist in the present. Um, and so... I think he, I mean, he, he seems likely to think that um, the enclosure of the, of the, the commons that is silence is um, very likely, right? Like he, he wouldn't be giving this, this lecture if he didn't think that silence was going to be destroyed by the various types of loudspeakers that come about, right? Um, but I don't think that he thinks it's inevitable. And I, th I think that's basically what he means by the sense of like you know the 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 need for a politics of self limitation limitation he seems to think that it's actually possible right that against the kind of technological determinism of our age right so many people in america just think of technology as a, a an agent in itself that will that will that will do things and we just simply have to respond to it i mean this is basically the way that science curriculum is taught to young people right that um, history marches in the direction of technology and it's in all we and we have to be adaptable you know we have to change our human communities and, and change our expectations in accordance with the march of technology and Illich wants to remind us that that's not the case and that we are a kind of thing a human kind of thing and we can be thrown into very damaging and degrading environments and we can adapt to those damaging and degrading environments but that's not going to be good for us, and it's not going to be tolerable for very long, and is going to result in, you know, some kind of conflict or some kind of eruption, right? I think that what has this year been, um, if anything, uh, other than uh, an, an eruption against the a certain type of uh, or, or a certain set of enclosures, right? Like the the lockdowns in the springtime then went, you know, then led almost directly into the eruption of protests in the early summer, and then the the second round of lockdowns um, segued directly into another set of riots. Right? I mean, I think that's to some extent a sort of superficial read of these situations because it's not taking into account the actual mo expressed motives of the people participating in them. But I think it would be. Um, 
ridiculous not to not to take into account the the extent uh, to which the circumstances of the world had put a lot of pressure on people and that pressure gets relieved somehow right and that I, th- I think that Illich is basically warning us against this that if we continue to let this process of degradation happen and if we continue to let human communities be obliterated um, and if we continue to let um, you know this process of the transformation of all of reality into various types of resources to be strip mined. Um, we don't know what's going to happen down the line, but it's probably not going to be particularly good. And something lies within our ability, and that and that ability is deliberation and negotiation and the ability to take stock of um, the possibility of a thing and to say no to it. That's very interesting because. I think there's, you know, a sort of pessimistic read of all of this too, um, which is that the logic of it all is to turn everyone into last men and last women, you know, in Nietzsche's sense, um, which is everyone becomes uh, kind of decadent, mindless consumers and is or thinks they are happy with it and, and what you're saying and obviously influenced by what Illich is saying um, is that there's something human that resists the slide into that, that there will be an eruption before that can happen. Yeah. A lot of things can be changed, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure that we can entirely be changed and thank God. (laughs) This has me leaving. This leads me feeling like it's time to retreat to the silent commons of the monastery. Um, I, this is, this is quite, this is quite a problem. And I, I don't know how, how it can be resolved. I, I'm not sure. Let me present a different possibility than the monastery though. Um, can the internet be used to cultivate silence? I don't think so. The internet, right? It's 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 much like the TV, right? It it. Why would we go to it to sit in silence? I don't think that really happens. Even when you're with others on the internet and online spaces, your the presence is not felt if talking is not happening. Um, I think that something like the silence of friendship uh, is still a possibility, right? That I I I always think about um, when. Um, after Job has been stricken with all of the plagues and his family has been destroyed and his, and his flocks are all left, he's, he, a, a number of friends come to him and they sit with him in silence. And there's something about both friendship that, that allows the possibility for that kind, of, that kind of communion that takes place in silence and then also the silence that allows the possibility of that kind of friendship to happen, right? It's a, it's a reciprocal process. Um, if, if I've learned anything from our sort of year of being on Zoom, it's that this format cannot at all replace the kind of person-to-person, fleshly, you know, interactions that we have with each other in the real world. We, we published a fantastic essay on this, right? John Eretz, the half-form thought that, you know, these are, are sort of Zoom-mediated, are, you know, um, interactions, group DMs, as much as I love them, 
can't quite do this, that there's something about real, you know, fleshly being together and the kinds of conversations that are allowable in an, in an environment like that and the kind of silence that's allowable in an environment like that, that simply cannot be recreated by the internet. Um, and I think we just have to remember that. And uh, uh, that also makes me think that um, silence is valuable for what silence can engender, but that also silence is valuable because it creates the possibility of having meaningful speech. Um, you know, sort of where you don't say anything if it's not worthwhile to say. Um, and that the, you know, sort of flooding the market with speech drives the value of the average speech act down or something. Um, and, and that kind of forecloses the possibility of having meaningful speech of the kind that you need to do democratic deliberation or, um, you know, to perform community building ritual, uh, things like that. And a tendency that I think has grown increasingly popular, I mean, for myself personally, and I I think uh, more broadly, is, is people being curious about the possibility of what's often described as accelerationism or some, I, I, I mean, I, I suppose Marx's approach to these same, same problems and, and Illich strikes against any sense that, that the way out is through or, or by accelerating or increasing these. The, the last, uh, last couple lines in this essay, uh, by definition, resources call for defense by police. Once they are defended, the recovery as commons becomes increasingly difficult. This is a special reason for urgency. And now I, I haven't read the work um, but I, I have taken that one of uh, Illich's other major contributions is trying to sociologically apply the, the medical doctrine uh, of do no harm. Um, and that seems to be a takeaway at, at the, from this, that maybe if we can't return to the commons or, or can't make everything suddenly Edenic, we should definitely resist anything that makes it a little bit worse as we degrade ourselves or, or further enclose each each step away from the commons is a step that that is going to have to be overcome before you can take any other steps back right. hopefully I laid, laid that out, out clearly but but I suppose a, a sense of real skeptic caution in trying to not make things any worse and trying to not do any more harm to our political community. Yeah, that sounds totally right. Um, you know, I have this, I have this sort of, uh, this sort of nagging feeling or something, which is like, you know, I, I love Illich and I love so many things about this essay, but, but am I going to get off Twitter? <laughs> and I, and I, you know, and I, I think that, like, I'm not sure that that Illich's response or something is 
to say that you should, should you simply shouldn't do any of these things that that um, he's not he's not arguing for a kind of um, a kind of hermeticism or something he's not he's not you know he, he's not Ted Kaczynski um, and I think that I think that a thing that Illich might say would be to say something like well okay let's say you already find yourself in the position of being a sort of you know above average Twitter user or something find and cultivate the positive aspects of the of these platforms as best you can um, use them for for friendship and human flourishing to the extent that they're uh, able to do such a thing and then try as best as you can to avoid or you know call out the negative consequences of these things right I mean I, I don't think that it's hypocritical exactly to you know to use Twitter or Facebook or whatever um, and use it for the the, the, gen, the really genuine and very real kind of connective possibilities that they allow for and then to also say well my, my goodness these things are horribly destructive of human of human communities right like um, that's not contradictory um, every single one of these technologies does genuinely allow for like really interesting new sets of possibilities but then they also have you know the possibility of being horribly degrading um, and a reasoned assessment of these things um, with regard to your own personal use is a really good idea um, but I think that, you know, Illich isn't just talking to us as individuals. He's talking to people in power, too. And I, I think that, uh, you know, if we were able to, you know, sort of live in, if we, if we, if we were able to incorporate Illich's um, criticisms politically, it would look like something like having a lot more oversight both at pretty much every level of governance about the kinds of technologies that are being incorporated into our communities and the ability of certain places to simply say no to these things um and yeah i mean that makes me think of um you know this the state of the future of ai um <laughs> which is I feel like most of what's written on it is it's potentially destructive potential, both of kind of the fabric of human identity, um, you know, and also just, you know, uh, the more practical ways that it can be, you know, weaponized or used to exert control. Um, but the, there's no, or almost no thought to limiting it like like you said that a community could say no um the the idea is that well this is just happening this is going to happen this technology is going to be here in the next 10 or 15 years it's going to be integrated everywhere um and that there's nothing anyone really can do about it uh that it's just the forward flow of technology um and one thing that you know, say Illich here is reminding us uh, is that it actually is possible to exert some control over these things and that m maybe it creates great potential and, uh, you know, 
medicine or in freeing us up for leisure time or something, but that that's our decision to make. Um, it's not something that need just be foisted on us and accepted as the natural development of things. Yeah, I think also, you know, um, I think Illich would also be very much against things like the deciding of democratic questions on a federal level via the Supreme Court, right? Um, that things like abortion, for instance, is for him, I think, uh, as much a technological question as it, as it is a moral question, um, perhaps more so a technological question because it has to do with the means of being able to do such a thing. And uh, a sort of Illichian stance on such a thing would be to say, it, you have to let people make decisions about these things for their communities and that making sweeping judgments on the level of the whole not only is, um, is you know, sort of condemning us to a way of thinking about technological developments as this kind of tidal wave that's uncontrollable, right? That we get into that mindset because things like this happen but it also is, is sort of produces the means of revolt down the line. And if you want to avoid the revolt down the line, you have to, you have to make these things open to democratic deliberation on the smallest levels. I, I don't think I have anything else to add on to this. Do, do either of you have some final remarks you want to get in? Or? I would just say, you know, Yvonne Illich is great. And, um, I've been really heartened by a lot of people that I know turning to his books recently to make sense of some of the um, the cultural and political developments that are that are that are that we're facing right now. Um, I find him to be I find him his his work and his project and his writing to be very clarifying for certain questions, and it's even crazier because you know he's writing about. Um, the kinds, the, the suspicions he has about computer technology, he's writing about them in the in the early '80s, and yet all of the things that he says have either been, um, either confirmed his suspicions, um, or, you know, things are like even worse than, than he could have imagined, uh, and yeah, I, I think I think that he's a remarkable witness to. Um, the changes that, that, that are that are beginning in in the sort of like early post-modernity in the sort of early stages of, of the neoliberal period i think that he's um an amazing resource for a lot of, a lot of his writing has to do with the history of the church right that he's he, his vision of modernity is something like it what what the modern is is a, a set of developments that begin in the heart of christendom um, and then kind of get out of control uh, and then they turn into the modern world, and then they retroactively pervert Christianity. So, Christ, so Christianity produces the modern, and then becomes perverted by the modern. And um, yeah, I don't know. He's 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 a wonderful, very synthetic, you know, sort of broad-minded thinker. Um, he's not difficult to read for for as deep as as his thinking is. I think he's very approachable. Um, and I, yeah, just I just you know I just insist that uh, people who are listening to this go and grab some Illich and, and check it out. A lot of his stuff's available on the internet. His books are available for pretty for pretty cheap. Uh, go do it. Will anything you'd like to? No, I I think I'm just going to be thinking about 
um, the, 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 you know, where village sees possibilities for action. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to do these kind of, and I would, I would categorize this, uh, as one kind of structural analysis, um, you know, of the kind that like Foucault and post-Foucaultians, uh, do and, and, you know, coming out thinking that it's hopeless, um, that, that everything is determined by the media of technology that we interact with, um, you know, or the, you know, the logic that's in it, um, playing out to its conclusion, uh, and that, and that that's not right, that there's, you know, there's possibilities to, um, you know, improve things, to change course, uh, you know, however much we choose to, um, and, you know, so after what was largely a very pessimistic kind of diagnosis of things, um, uh, you know, I think I'll think about, you know, where, uh, where he sees space to be optimistic and, and, and to act and to, you know, improve what he, uh, very correctly diagnoses. I think this was phenomenal episode hopefully our listeners agree and thank you very much for for taking the time to listen uh to this also strongly encourage you to check out uh joey's work uh both on our own website uh his website and elsewhere he's published did a really great thing in the in the point recently so i'm glad we were able to have him on uh thanks will for for taking the time to to speak and And thank you, listeners. Yeah, thanks, guys. This has been a blast. Uh, And if you're listening to this, go out and be silent.